0: Matthew chapter 10 in southeastern Minnesota, kind of where I spent my high school and junior high years, there is a town city called Fairbolt In Fairbolt, Minnesota. There is a particular man by the name of Mark Thompson, who had an intruder come into his house with a knife, apparently trying to rob him. But he encountered Mark and that that burglar took his knife and stabbed him up and laced him up pretty, lanced him up pretty awfully. So bad were his injuries that it was a long and painful recovery and he was unable to go in 1988 when his son Chris was going to be running in the Minnesota State Cross Country Championship. He was pretty devastated that he couldn't go. This is obviously a highlight for his son's career. He's always been to all the meets. But Mark simply couldn't go and so what he did is he, he called his brother up and asked him if he'd come up, his brother Merv, and said, I'd like you to go in my place. This is what I'd like you to do. When the race gets started, I want you to cheer just like I would cheer. I want my son to hear my voice through you. And then when they kind of finish up that race, you know, and, and if you've ever run cross country, or you've ever run a serious race, literally someone can carry you through because you have nothing left in your body. Your legs are still moving. And it's sometimes just the cheer of a friend or a fellow runner Or someone along the side side is going to pull you through. He says, I want you to cheer with everything you've got. And at the end of that race, I want you to make your voice sound like me. Well, Chris ran a very strong race, He ended up finishing second that year at the state championship. And I tell you this because that's what Jesus is doing when we come to the gospel of Matthew, especially in Matthew chapter 10. He is going to send Men who are now going to minister in his place and he wants them to sound like him. It's not only just that he wants to sound like him. He actually wants to live and accomplish his purposes through their life. He's going to live through them. He is like we saw last week. He actually is going to empower them. He's going to give them the authority to do the things that only Jesus could do. Heal the sick. Cleanse lepers cast out demons, even raise the dead. His intent was, I'm going to live through you. I'm sending you out, and as you go, so do I. You see, that is what Jesus is accomplishing between his first coming and his second coming, is he is mobilizing his people, those who have truly come to an authentic relationship with him. He actually indwells in them, and his intent is to live out his life through his people, we're to look like him, we're to learn from him. We are to live for him because God is going to accomplish his work through his people. You might want to think about it this way. Christ, who's accomplished all things for us, desires to do great things through us. And when we come to the gospel of Matthew, it is really an account of how Jesus brings these men who he calls to himself to a point where they will go and represent him in the world. And he actually gives them their his Holy Spirit to do so. But if you want to know what is the primary work of the church, what are we about? Are we about entertaining the masses? Are we trying to just collect people and get them in a holding tank? Are we trying to get people to adopt certain Christian values? Well, actually, that is not the the answer. The church's primary mission is to make disciples. It is to go make disciples, like that banner says, of all the nations. We are to be involved in seeing people come to truly know Christ as Lord and help them to grow in a knowledge of him and also to grow in Christ's likeness. That is what we're all about. That is the mission. And so this is the call. Of Jesus. Have you ever noticed that Jesus is always calling you into a deeper relationship with Him to become a fully devoted follower of Him? That has been the case throughout the ages since the calling of Christ, since Matthew chapter 10, when Jesus first uttered these words. But let me just give you a couple people from the past. Some of you are familiar with a woman by the name of Florence Nightingale, and she was that celebrated 19th century nurse who is considered the founder of modern nursing. This woman at the age of 30 wrote this in her diary. I am 30 years of age, the age of which Christ began his mission. No more childish things, no more vain things. And she went on to a life of heroic giving of herself for the work of God to accomplish his purposes through her life. And a primary venue for that was in the field of nursing. At the end of her life, She was asked this question, how in the world were you able to accomplish so much for the Lord? And I want you to listen to her reply. She said this, I can only give one explanation, and that is this, I have kept nothing back from God. Let me give you another one. The American surgeon, Howard E. Kelly, very famous. He was actually one of the four professors that founded John Hopkins Hospital. He wrote, when he graduated in, 18, in the 1800s, in the late 1800s, he wrote in his diary this when he graduated from medical school. Today, I dedicate myself, my time, my capabilities, my ambition, everything to him. And then he wrote this prayer. Blessed Lord, sanctify me to thy uses. Give me no worldly success which may not lead me near to my Savior. You see, the call of Christ is to give everything to him so that he will accomplish his purposes in our generation. And when you come to Matthew chapter 10, this is a detailed discussion given initially to his first 12 apostles, these apostles, these disciples, who are going to the lost sheep of Israel, but it has carryover value for all of those who carry the mission of Christ. And he details what does it look like to follow Jesus. And so what he does is he gives, beginning in verse 24, some guiding principles for those who follow Christ. And the first one is, is that we who follow Christ, we are to look like Christ. Look what he says in verse 24. He said, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher And the slave like his master. These are extremely important words. If you get your pencil, I encourage you to underline, especially verse 25, because you see, we who follow Christ, he fully intends that we will look like him. You see, the ultimate goal of discipleship, both in the Jewish world and in the Greco-Roman world, is that you end up looking like your master, you look like him, you behave like him, you react like him. You grow in the likeness of the one who trained you. And this is really the, the Eastern view of discipleship. This is everything that Jesus had in mind. You men, I am training you that you will look like me. You will behave like me. You will speak like me. And in the case of Christ, he actually is going to empower them to be able to do just that. Now, this is very contrary to the Western world of thinking. Oftentimes, Westerners, that's people like you and I, we think that discipleship is just the transference of certain bits of information. We want people to believe and be educated on certain beliefs about God. We want them to accept Christ, and hopefully at a later point, they're going to develop their theology. But oftentimes, and you see this even reflected in evangelism, what we're after is we want people to adopt our belief system. We we want people, it's almost like a power grab, to agree that our system of faith is more rational or it's more right, and we just want you to come along and believe with us. And and that is really actually very foreign to the New Testament uh, means and manner of evangelism, which can never be divorced from discipleship. Evangelism is calling people to truly trust Christ as Lord and Savior, He is Savior from their sins, but he is also the Lord of your life. The Eastern view of discipleship was a call of repentance and truly trusting Christ and following him. The idea that you will just believe certain doctrinal beliefs or certain truths about Christ and go, great, and now I'll live however I want, is actually foreign to the New Testament concept of discipleship. You see, God is not interested in just the transference of information He's after transformation, that you and I live and look and are different because of the presence of Christ and are following him. And so this is the time-honored way of how people grew and matured in the faith. It's what Jesus is saying, it is enough for the disciple to become like his teacher and the slave like his master. And so all Jewish children, they learned the scriptures. Jewish boys learned how to read. And then at age 13, this is what happened. They were apprenticed. Now, oftentimes that meant you live with dad and work with dad, and you worked with him day in and day out. However, if you had multiple sons, you might send one or two of those away, and they would go live with another man, and he would be apprenticed. And you would learn that man's trade. And what you did is you learned everything. You did all these meaningful chores And you watched him, you learned from him, but it was the ongoing process of to be trained by that individual so that you would look like him. And so that is exactly what Jesus is talking about. You men, you've been hanging with me. You've been watching me do these things, but now I'm going to send you. I'm going to accomplish my purposes through you. And you are to look like me. Now, when it comes to discipling, it is always a process. This is another place where we kind of get hung up. It's almost like we are addicted to the miraculous. We want quick fixes, just like that, done. We want extreme makeover, whether it be our homes or our lives. We'd like, well, I got these major issues. I want to be completely changed and transformed. And could we get this done in a week? You know, I got a busy life. I do you keep going? Well, that's how we think. And we are really disappointed, discouraged, if not totally give up. If we're not just radically changed in a very short period of time. You see, discipleship is always a process. It is a process of come and follow Christ and learn from him so that you will be like the teacher. So. You know, it's very interesting when you look at the Gospels. There's all these miracles that Jesus does heals all these different people. Have you ever noticed that not once is there one recorded, recorded instance where Jesus just kind of waved his hand and somebody's ugly habit was just gone? Never happens. Because Those things that break us and keep us coming to the cross of Christ and keep us united with the gospel and bring brokenness to our life, that is what keeps us near to the Lord. And he doesn't want you to stay in your pit. He doesn't want you to stay in all your wicked little habits. He intends to change you from the inside out. But discipleship with Jesus is a process. And so you got to remember, even Jesus' closest men, they had a record of failures. You would think that by the end of the three-year ministry with Jesus, man, they would be hitting on all four cylinders, right? Making no mistakes. Doing everything the master said, right? They didn't learn obedience. Well, that's far from the case, right? You remember he said, listen, guys. And they knew something was up on that Passover. He said, I want you to stay and pray with me. You can count on Jesus. And about five minutes later, they're passed out, right? And he had to keep on. hey, guys, remember you said, oh, why are you, why are you sleeping? I asked you to pray. Oh, we're just tired. You see, Jesus is always in the process of drawing us to him. He is fully aware of our weaknesses. But he wants us to grow and develop into Christ's likenesses, likeness. And so it is the ongoing process of becoming like the master. Let me just tell you all there's also one thing, other, to remember. Sometimes people think discipleship is just discipline, that you are just going to create these good disciplines in your life, and that makes you a good disciple of Jesus. However, although discipline is extremely important, that would be the equivalent of a parent saying, I just want my kids to be well-disciplined. If I, if I hear a parent saying that, I'm like, we have got troubles." Parenting is far more than having just well-disciplined kids. I don't care anything about them other than they just follow what I say. If that is your goal of parenting, you are going to be an extreme failure and all you have to do is wait for them to get out of your house to find out what you've created. Discipleship is to become like the master, like Jesus has to say. You see, Christianity is not merely informational. It is intended to be incarnational. It is to be transformation from within. That we look like Christ and we grow in Christ-likeness. And as Jesus says, that we become like him. Let me just tell you, if you're new here, our church's mission statement is this. To glorify God by living out the life we have in Christ. We grow in Christ-likeness as we grow and live out the life that we have, that Christ has invested in in our life, and we live it out. That's what Jesus is saying here. Let me give you another guideline that jesus gives you find it right there at the end of verse 25 and that is this those who oppose christ will oppose his followers you need to know this you who follow christ you're going to take heat because he did look what he says verse 25 he says if they have called the head of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign the members of his household now, that may be an unfamiliar term for you. Beelzebul was a Philistine deity. Now, it's actually, it, his, the original name was Beelzebub, which means Lord of the Flies. It eventually got changed to Beelzebul, the Lord of the House. And so really, Jesus is even using a play on words here. And that is exactly what the Pharisees said. We don't know about this Jesus. We think he's in league with Satan. Verse 34 in chapter 9, they were calling him, you are satanic. We don't know exactly how you're doing these things, but we think that the demons even respond to you because you're their ruler. That's what they said about Jesus. And Jesus says if they called the head of the house Beelzebul, and the Jews actually adopted this term to refer to Satan, he says, get ready. How much more will they malign the members of his household? Hey, I've got news for you. The world has rejected the Messiah. And Jesus says, I want you to be ready. You follow me. You are going to face hostility and opposition. The whole idea that you trust in Christ and life is roses from here on out is fantasy and fiction. It is a myth. Because Jesus has called us to follow him, and he is preparing his followers that you're going to take heat. So, all of you guys are getting ready for school, guys and gals, kids getting ready for school. You walk with Jesus, that may not be overly popular with some of the people in the school. You walk with Jesus at work, and you reflect him and represent his life, you're going to take some heat. It can be anywhere from snide remarks to saying, I'm sorry. You seem unstable because you have a faith in Jesus. We're going to pick someone else for this promotion. You walk with Jesus in your neighborhood. You might find yourself isolated or you might be found to be kind of the religious joke. You're going to take heat. But just think of some of those who have taken great pains coming out of Arab cultures, Muslims, Hindus, and their background and coming to Christ. Jesus says, be prepared. Those who oppose Christ will oppose his followers. Now, let me just take you to the third principle in the next verse here. In verses 26 through 31, Jesus gives another guideline for those who follow Christ. Let me tell you what this is. Faith in Christ will allow us to overcome our fears in life. You see, when Jesus made that statement and said, hey, get ready. If they oppose me, just think what they're going to do with you. What does that usually elicit from us? Fear. We like people to like us. I mean... Man, someone gives us a funny look and like, you wreck my day, and you're all nervous. And you're, okay, Jesus is saying, listen, learn to trust me. Do not fear. You see, our faith in Christ allows us to overcome our fears in life. I, I hope you can remember this principle, because if you're like me, you face things that you're like, whew, this is tough, or I'm not exactly sure. Or, you think the whole bottom's fallen out of everything. Remember that your faith in Christ allows you to overcome your fears in life. And in verses 26 through 31, three different times he says, do not fear. And so he says, verse 26, therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. He says, hey, don't fear, because the things are going to be revealed, both the negative, the bad, the evil is one day going to come to light one day it will be judged, but even the good, it is going to be revealed. He says, do not worry, do not fear. Or verse 27, he says, what I tell you in the darkness. This, isn't, this is speaking in like the quiet and the hidden. He says, I want you to speak in the light. You see, I know there are people who oppose you. They oppose me. But I don't want you to be afraid because I want you to carry the message of the gospel to the world. And so what I have told you in the dark I want you to speak in the light. And what you've heard whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Now, the whispering in the ear, this is how the rabbis train their protégés. This is very interesting. We, we don't do it this way. But what a rabbi would do is, as he was working with his students, he would literally whisper in their ear what they were to say And then the student would say exactly what had been whispered in his ear. That is how they trained them. So if they were asked a question, the rabbi would give the response, whisper it in your ear. And then the man would speak exactly what was said. That was their method of training. That is what Jesus is referencing. What I have whispered in your ear, you who are becoming like me, you who represent me, I want you to stand on the housetops and I want you to proclaim it. And that is how proclamations were made. They had flat roofs on their homes. And so if you wanted to make a public announcement, you didn't stand on the ground. You got on a higher spot. So they would climb up on the top of the roof and they'd make their announcement. What you've heard in quiet and secret, what I've whispered in your ear, I want you to proclaim so that people will hear. Do not fear. Or he says in verse 28, he says, do not fear those who kill the body. Does, Does that alarm you? See what he says? Verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. He says, don't fear those who even could bring you to death. Tell you what, is that pretty sobering? This is not your your normal gospel message. A call to die? You mean someone might even take my life? Jesus says, I don't want you to fear them, you who follow me. Don't feel can. they are unable to kill the soul. If they kill you, you are instantly removed from sin, from suffering. You are instantly going to be taken away from the things like sorrow and sickness, and you will be in my presence. I'll tell you the one who to fear, to have great reverence for, is the one who is able to kill both body and soul, namely God himself. And you see, when we have a holy fear of God, what it does is it gives us a freedom from the fear of man. You see, your faith in God will allow you to overcome your fears in life. But if you are afraid of what people think of you, you're afraid what they might do to you, or you might get some sort of little funny look, then you're going to be paralyzed. You're going to be a quiet little Christian, and you're going to hope that nobody notices Jesus says, don't fear them. It's interesting. These words kind of bring to mind a guy by the name of John Knox. He was a a Catholic priest in Scotland. And when he came to understand the gospel and what real relationship with God is, he actually then became a Protestant. He protested against the Catholic Church and he became a huge spokesperson. In fact, he led the Protestant Reformation in Scotland For people to come to understand a saving relationship with Christ. It's not all wrapped up in rituals and routines. It is wrapped up in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And on his gravestone is written this. Here lies one who feared God so much that he never feared the face of any man. You see, when we we have a holy reverence for God, we fear him. We recognize of his power then what we do is we find that we're not afraid of people like we once were. He says, Jesus sees the fear in his men's eyes. Just like when I read these weird words, you're going, "Whoo, man, I'm glad I'm sitting down here and I don't think anybody is too upset with me. But Jesus said, listen, verse 29, you don't need to fear. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall on the ground apart from your father. Now, Sparrows. Sparrows were the food of the poor people. Okay? And, and that's, that's what they ate. So, you know, like, we have Kentucky fried chicken. Okay? They had Galilean fried sparrow. Okay? You know, it's just kinda extra crunchy. And that's what poor people ate, you know? So we're all thinking we're gonna go get some chicken afterward. They all got sparrows, right? And you could get two sparrows for an Assyrian, which was less than an hour's wage. you could purchase these little birds and, I don't know, deep fat fry them or however they made them and eat away. There you go. Okay. They were cheap. That's what people ate. They ate sparrows. Okay. Anybody ready for lunch? No, I didn't think so. That's, he says, you know about these sparrows, he said? They're sold for a cent and yet not, look at this. Do you question whether or not God is truly sovereign? Is he really in control? Does he really even care? Look at this. He says, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Some of the translations, the Greek actually had it. Not one of them will even hop on the ground apart from your father's notice. You see, our father loves us and he has intricate, extreme care for the details of our life. That includes when we go through hardship and suffering. He is there. He cares he is with you. He will strengthen you. But he is saying, you don't need to be worried about the people who are going to oppose you because your father cares about you. Or he says, how about this? Verse 30. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Wow. You know, now he says, not only does he care about sparrows, but he says the hairs on your head are numbered, not counted. OK, do you know, the average person has anybody know how many? Piece of hair you have in your head? Anybody count? Okay, it's 144,000. That's the average. Okay, so like as I look around here, you know, some of you are going, "Hey, this is a decreasing number for me." Okay, you know what I'm saying? And for but then you know, there's others. You know, there's some ladies here, and they have lots and lots of hair. They're making up. Okay, and the average is about 145,000. Jesus says, "They're numbered." That is the intricacy of the care and the detail of God's sovereignty. This is a God unlike any other. He is incomprehensible that he could number the hairs on our head. He says, verse 30, But the very hairs of your head are all numbered, so do not fear. You are more valuable than sparrows. God knows. He sees the opposition. He knows what you're facing, and he is there, and he cares. He says, you know, you and I... We do not need to fear. He says, you don't need to fear these things because I am with you. You see, our faith in Christ allows us to overcome our fears in life. Whatever you're afraid of, okay? And I know, even you big tough guys, right? Former football stars, right? I know there's issues and things in your life that you simply do not know the answer to. And it does strike fear, though you're not going public on it. Remember this. It is your faith in Christ that allows you to overcome your fears in life. Let me give you another principle that Jesus then starts to highlight, beginning in verse 32. And that is this. The worthiness of, worthiness of Christ is to be reflected in the way that we live. The worthiness of Christ is reflected in how you and I live our lives. Look at verse 32. He says, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. And the idea of confessing is that you affirm, you acknowledge, you confess, you identify with Christ. And he says, if you confess me before men, you're not afraid of them, you identify with me among people, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus says, verse 33, however, But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my father who is in heaven. And the idea is that when we come before judgment before God. We who have confessed Christ, we have believed in him and we identify with him. Jesus says, this one is mine. I don't know if the record of our wrongs and all our heinous sin toward God, our self-centeredness, all the many times we've ignored Him or blasphemed Him, I don't know if that is brought up. I do know one thing, that Christ stands between us and our sin, and He says, It is paid for, and this one is mine. But on the other hand, like He says here, whoever denies me before men, you didn't want Jesus, you denied Him, you could care less, You thought this was a joke. You think people that believe in Christ and give their lives for him and his service is just a huge waste of a life and time. You deny me before men. And Jesus says, if that's what you want, that is your heart intent. He says, I will also deny him before my father who is in heaven. There's this is such a tremendous judgment that will come for each person. And you either truly know Christ and he knows you. And you were willing to confess him or you say, no, I don't want him and I could care less. If that is the case, you will face a eternal judgment. The things that were once hidden will be made known. And so Jesus says, this one belongs to me. Now, this these verses actually scare me because you know why? There are a lot of times where I could have stepped up and just publicly confessed I was a Christian. And I either maybe just kind of went along with the flow of conversation or just avoided the subject altogether. Does our, uh, am I I alone? You guys, oh, you're like, what a sorry pastor. (laughs) I've never done that. I don't even know what the guy's talking about, but why is he up there? I think we're all in that boat. Does our lack of confession lead to Christ saying, whoa, you blew it back there. You're in front of those fraternity boys, and you just caved. You didn't say anything about me. Does that mean that Christ is going to deny us? No. He is talking about those who make it a lifestyle pattern of denying him and rejecting him. Uh, think of a guy by the name of Peter. Remember, Jesus says, things are really going to get heated up here. This is the hour for which I came. Peter, let's have a little one-on-one here. Uh, you're going to deny me three times tonight before this rooster crows. What? No way. Not me. I'm Peter. I got a knife. I'm tough. I'm a little impulsive. Of course I won't deny you. And Jesus said, no, you will. And did Peter deny Jesus? Yeah. Three times. And to make matters worse, he did it with cursing. I never knew the man. <laughs> Blaspheme, swear. Was that it for Peter? Jesus said, that's it. You blew it. You denied me. You're supposed to stand up. You saw that I was taking a beating. You should have said, hey, I'm with him. No. That denial led to a confession, led to a restoration, led to a greater dependence in Peter's life upon Jesus. Because he saw what he was made of apart from trusting Christ. Apart from the spirit of God and us relying upon him, we're very quick to deny and Jesus restored Peter, in fact, used him in some extremely significant ways, writing letters in the New Testament, being the apostle of the Gentiles and a leader in the early church. Or, you know, another guy, I think of a guy by the name of Timothy, and I don't know if he had some sort of breakdown spiritually or maybe he was just afraid of all the people that he was pastoring in Ephesus. But this pastor got a letter, the final letter that Paul wrote, and in Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, he says, Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Do not be ashamed. So our failure to confess doesn't lead to our dismissal from heaven. On the other hand, what he's talking about here is those who make it a pattern to not ever identify with Christ. Now, this was a huge issue in first century Rome. Let me just tell you how the early followers of Christ took Jesus' statements from Matthew chapter 10. There's a guy by the name of Pliny. He was the first century governor in Bithynia, which is kind of northern Asia Minor. And he was writing a letter to the Emperor Trajan to explain why he was having such a hard time of getting rid of this growing sect called Christians. And in this letter that we have, he wrote of all the different things he tried to extricate Christianity out of his part of the empire. And he said, you know, I've tried it all. I've tried arrest. I've tried fines. I have tried imprisonment. I've tried beatings. I've tried torture and various forms of execution. But I cannot get them to do two things. I can't get them to deny Jesus Christ is Lord and God, and I can't get them to burn incense to Caesar. But I have tried everything. And then this is what he wrote. Quote, none of these acts, those who are really Christians, can be compelled to do. They simply will not do it because they can't deny the truth. That is Jesus' words put into action. So if you deny Christ, he is going to deny you. And so he says, Verse 34, do not think that I came, came to bring, bring peace on the earth. Don't think that I've come to turn this into like a little Disney. It's a small, small world after all. And you just put people on a boat and they watch all these little puppets. And everything's going to be peaceful, calm and tranquil. Far from it. Jesus says, I came to bring not peace, but a sword. A sword speaks of division. A sword speaks metaphorically of judgment. I've come to bring division. How serious will this be? Verse 35. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He's saying those who follow me are going to find that even in their own household, people will consider them enemies and reject them. And this is exactly what has taken place Since the inception of Jesus' words, there are family members that are just radically opposed to you coming to Christ. That is true of people from all sorts of different backgrounds today. You look at what a Muslim goes through when they place their faith in Christ, if they make it long. Or even Jewish people, excommunicated, considered dead. Some face torture. You lose your business. You lose the ability in your community to actually function and have commerce and trade. You become alienated. You become assigned to the wicked. Or some actually consider you dead. Before I went to India last year with Mike, when I was reading and trying to get ready to meet these Banjara Indians who have come to Christ, I read a book called The Death of a Guru. And And it's a story of how a man came out of deep Hinduism and what it looked like to come to Christ And the hardships that he faced. Utter rejection. Jesus says, there will be a division. Now, just because you know that, some people think like, oh, well, I don't want to become a Christian because my spouse will be upset or this will upset the kids. Or kids think my parents will hate me or whatever. Families coming to Christ usually begin with one person doing so. It gets started with one and it spreads. Now, there's no guarantee some people, we have people in our church, they are always alone on this matter. Why? Their family wants nothing to do with them. They will not talk about the matter. They don't want to hear about this Jesus. Jesus says, you need to be ready for that. And when he talks about daughter-in-law and mother-in-law, what was the custom was when a man married his wife. I don't know how this would work for you, but what you did is you moved into your father's house. Okay, so that you moved the case the, of okay, so the, the groom. He'd take his wife, and they'd move in with mom and dad until they were able to get their own place, or they'd inherit theirs. And that's why he's talking about, in-laws. It's tough enough with the in-laws, no matter how close or far away they live, but if you live even in their house, just imagine what it looked like to follow Jesus when the people that you were living with think that you have completely forsaken them, their culture, and the faith. Jesus says, be ready. In fact, he goes on to say, verse 37 when he talks about the worthiness of Christ as it's reflected in the way he lives, he says, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Ooh. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. What is Jesus doing here? He is claiming to be absolutely God. This is a claim to deity. Even the most esteemed rabbis and the Jewish family's faith held families in super high regard. The only one that you would love more than your daughter or your son or your spouse would be God himself. And Jesus says, I am him. And what I am calling for from my people is that you will love me with a love greater than the love that you have for your spouse or even your kids. I mean, think how much you love your children, parents. Or your spouse. I mean, there's a great love, deep history, deep devotion. He says, your love for me must be greater, for I am greater, for I am God. And then to culminate all things, he says in verse 38, and he he says, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. This is so startling. You and I, we'd never write a discipleship book and talk about things like a cross. Because a cross was the means, the primary means the Roman used to execute people. And yet Jesus uses this as a metaphor for discipleship. Do you want to grow and know me? Do you want to fulfill you, my call in your life? You must die to self and live to me. Luke actually says this is a daily process. Take up your cross daily, and follow me. It is to consider yourself and your own selfish desires dead, and you consider yourself to be alive in Christ and to Christ. Now, I would imagine that the disciples, these apostles, they're probably actually becoming unraveled at this point, because Jesus is literally calling them to die, and he uses a word, he uses the word cross that they were so very familiar with and they were so fearful of. The cross it actually was the most extreme, excruciating way to die. And they were familiar with it because what would happen is when they were going to crucify someone, they'd beat them, keep them barely alive, strap a beam on them, and then make them walk to the place they're going to go nail them to. And then they nail them up to a beam. And this is very fresh in the minds of the, of the people in Galilee at the time of Jesus, because about a couple of years before Jesus utters these words, there was an insurrection caused by a guy, Judas. He was a zealot. He got a band of people. They were going to go and fight against the Roman occupation forces. And so they did. But they were very unsuccessful because a general by the name of Varus, he went and completely conquered them. And in order to teach northern, the northerners, the people in Galilee, not to rebel against the Roman occupation, he actually crucified 2,000 Jews. And he didn't do it just on some sort of little corner where no one could see it. He found every byway in Galilee, and he just had crosses strung from one end to the other, and he had all these people crucified as a message. Do not mess with the Roman Empire, and do not lead another revolt. And so when Jesus says, take up your cross, they realized he was calling them to die to themselves, And to live for him. You really want to follow Jesus? Jesus says, you got to follow me on my terms. There's a a bumper sticker, maybe you've seen it. And it says, try Jesus. You ever seen that bumper sticker? Try Jesus. You know, your other thing's not working there. Your little philosophy, your religion's not working. Why don't you try Jesus? That whole try Jesus mentality is completely foreign to the New Testament. You don't try Jesus like you're going to a mall and try clothes. I don't wonder if this will work for me. No, to come to Jesus is to come fully to him. It is to turn from your sin, to repent, to trust in his Lord, to follow him, to obey him. And it is for a lifetime. That is why we want people to consider very strongly and very closely. What does it mean to follow Jesus and to know him? Because we don't want to be, have people that are just inoculated to the truth. Jesus doesn't want us just to live. When you get up in the morning, it's just like. I just want to live or survive the day. He wants us to live for him. You know, about these uh, verses and this whole concept here, John Stott, I think many of you are familiar with him. He's a very famous theologian pastor in England. He actually just died, not too, like about a week and a half ago. And he wrote in his book, Basic Christianity, some words that are so penetratingly true. I want you to listen to them. He says, the Christian landscape is strewn with the wreckage of derelict house-built towers, The ruins of those who began to build and were unable to finish for thousands of people still ignore Christ's warning and undertake to follow him without first pausing to reflect on the cost of doing so. The result is the great scandal of Christendom today, so-called nominal Christianity in countries to which Christian civilization has spread. Large numbers of people have covered themselves with a decent but thin veneer of Christianity. They've allowed themselves to become somewhat involved, enough to be respectable, but not enough to be uncomfortable. Their religion is a great soft cushion. It protects them from the hard unpleasantness of life while changing its place and shape to suit their convenience. No wonder the cynics speak of hypocrites in the church and dismiss religion as escapism. See, the Christian It's not just someone who comes to Jesus like for fire insurance to protect me from hell. The Christian comes with a life devoted to him because he's Lord and he's Lord over all, especially me. It's our desire as Christians is to please him, to obey him, to follow him, to experience his life in us, to trust in his power. When we fall and fail and we do on a regular basis, at least I do, we come to him for forgiveness. He forgives. We move forward. But we are always following Jesus. Those who think that you can just accept certain gospel facts, certain doctrines, know them here intellectually and think that that's all there is to Christianity. My advice to you is to examine yourself to be sure that you're in the faith. It's not just saying, oh, yeah, I believe Jesus is God. Yeah, he died on the cross. You know what? The demons believe that and shudder. You have to know him, and more importantly, he has to know you. Following Jesus is not really about your happiness. It is primarily about your holiness, you knowing him and reflecting him in this world, that you're on mission. You want to see other people come to know Christ, to grow in him and to grow in his likeness. Well, let me just close by giving you a fifth principle that Jesus closes with. Earthly identification with Christ has a great heavenly reward. Been pretty tough so far, hasn't it? Lord, what will happen in the end? Jesus says, you get ready. Look at this. Verse 39. He who has found his life will lose it. What he's saying there, if you think you've found your life apart from God, apart from trusting, truly knowing Christ, you think you found it? You found life apart from God? Jesus says, you, in fact... You will lose it. On the other hand, and he who has lost his life for my sake, you will find it. You give yourself fully to Christ. People will think like, what have you done? You have totally gone off the deep end. Somebody got to get some sense into you because you have abandoned reality and you're following Jesus. And they consider you a loss. They think even what you're doing right now is a waste of time because you could be frying out on a golf course somewhere right now. And like, what are you doing going to church and worshiping and singing songs of worship and studying the Bible? If they consider, if you've lost your life for Christ's sake, you give yourself to mission. You give yourself in the work of the gospel. You give money and significant funds to see the gospel going forward. You have found your life. And then he, he says this, not only does he promise to, that you will find your life, but verse 40, he says, he who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He says, not only are you going to find your life, but he's going to reward your faith. If they receive you, in actuality, they're receiving me because I've sent you. And then he says, verse 41, he who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. He's saying... If you receive someone who speaks for God, they receive you, they're going to receive your reward. This, the blessings of eternity, the depth of gratitude being expressed by Christ, the gift of God that we will experience in eternity, he says, is going to be so great. You give and you help and you serve. He says. He says, even, verse 42, Whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones a cup of cold water to drink, truly, I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. You give even just a cup of water. You're so poor, that's all you can offer. Let me tell you, you will receive great reward. I, let me just tell you, a fellowship here, I look around here, some of you are going to experience amazing wealth of blessing when we're all in heaven. Because you have given yourselves and you have given to the work of the ministry. And so Jesus is saying, you will be greatly rewarded. I read the story of a young man who was studying for the ministry. As most people studying for the ministry, they are deathly poor. They have nothing. There was a shoe cobbler. He didn't have a whole lot of money himself, but he took it upon himself to help this young man and tried to support him, even though he didn't make a lot of money. And then when the young man was finally able to go and be a pastor, the, uh, the cobbler said this, I, I want to do something for you. You see, I have always wanted to be uh, a person who proclaimed the gospel and to be a pastor and be able to be involved in people's lives where I could like, stand in the pulpit and just proclaim the gospel freely. But that, that's never happened for me. But I want to do this. I want to always make your cho- shoes for you, and they will always be for no charge. Because I want to know that when you were standing there proclaiming the gospel – You're standing in my shoes. And a man who has a mentality like that, or a woman who knows that her giving and the giving of her gifts and the supporting of the ministry, you're going to share in the reward. That is understanding Jesus' words. And so you know what the call is today, friends? The call of Christ is to follow him wholeheartedly, to hold nothing back. Whatever it is you might think keeps between you and full, whole, committed, conscious devotion to Christ, he's saying, I want you to give that to me so that you can follow me unhindered. You see, God, who has accomplished all things for us, desires to do great things through us. And so the church throughout the ages, including today, has taken the words of Jesus and it has lit a fire throughout the world. In the 16th century, there is a man by the name of Hugh Latimer. Uh, he was a pastor. He had the opportunity of speaking in front of King Henry VIII. And before he spoke there, he's like, oh, my. He said to himself, Latimer, Latimer, remember that the king is here. Be careful what you say. Then he said to himself, Latimer, Latimer, remember that the king of kings is here. Be careful what you do not say. Well, his uncompromising conviction to live his life wholeheartedly for Christ, it ended up costing him everything. In a later reign under Queen Mary, known as Bloody Mary, Mary had no tolerance for such people that were such advocates for full devotion to Christ and speaking the gospel so freely and calling people to repentance. And so she had him arrested and eventually sentenced to death. And not just some sort of quick death with a sword, so I'm going to make an example out of you. I'm going to burn you alive. And so that is exactly what happened. October 1555, Oxford, England. On the day of his execution by fire, Latimer, who was going to be executed next to a man by the name of Nicholas Ridley, is quoted to have said this: "Play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England that I trust shall never." Be put out. Friends, that candle was lit with Jesus' words. We give ourselves fully to him so that we might experience the fullness of his life and see the gospel going forward. This is what it means to follow Jesus. Christ, who has accomplished all things for us, he desires to do great things through us. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for the amazing power of your words. Matthew chapter 10. What an amazing explanation your son has given us of what it means to follow him. If there is someone here today who has never truly put their trust in Jesus, or even if there's some sort of doubt in their mind whether that has ever happened in their life, would they just pray with me and say, Lord, I turn from myself and my sin. I understand Christ has paid the penalty for my sins. I also understand now he has called me to follow him as Lord. So by faith, Lord, I do. I put no confidence in the flesh, all confidence in the Savior. And Father, for all of us, Lord, would we respond without holding back full devotion to you. Lord, may our lives in this generation reflect the light and the life of Christ for your glory. We ask in Jesus name. Amen.